Canucks Central Monday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah in the Kintech studio. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. A lot to get to. Canucks beating the Philadelphia Flyers and heading out onto the road for a couple. But, uh, Sat, I wanted to start today's show with um, maybe one of the... uh, strangest things that's happened to me uh in in recent memory and and trust me what happened my my life is is not (laughs) my life is not seinfeld-ish where like a lot of strange things uh happen and uh weird scenarios play out but uh so saturday i'm uh i'm out for a walk uh around the corners of of walk and don't walk and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a nice Saturday afternoon, getting a little walk in before I head over to Rogers arena. And so, so my wife and I are walking through the neighborhood and there's, there's a little bit of a commotion. There's, there's a, a police vehicle and somebody is, you know, being, uh, being arrested. And, 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 wow. and so like, as, as we're walking there's a lot of people walking, uh, through this scenario, uh, I, I'm, we're all obviously seeing what's going on and, and maybe trying to figure out what had just happened right before we we were walking through this area and as i'm as i'm staring at this situation playing out one of the officers is like they reach <laughs> and i was like what <laughs> i miss you guys all the time you guys are fast i like you guys i'm like wait as he's like arresting somebody <laughs> Well, I, like he was already in handcuffs, so the the, the officer was uh, sort of just standing there as this um, <laughs> as this person was, you know, being held, and and I guess he saw me looking over at what was happening. He was like, "Rich, I love so, you guys. I, Listen to the station all day. You guys are the best." I'm imagining him about to put him in the police car, and it just stops and just yanks the guy around and is talking to you, and the guy's all confused about what's going on. <laughs> So, so he wasn't yet putting uh, the the gentleman into the the police vehicle, but uh, he, the it was just so strange. I didn't know what to say. I was like, "Thanks, uh, thank thank you, appreciate your service." Uh, <laughs> I kind of wanted to stop, you know, find out about this uh, this listener of ours as well. Uh, but uh, doing a fine job, you know, keeping the streets safe uh, here in Vancouver. It was just uh, it was it was hilarious how it all played out. Shouts to officer fan of Canuck Central. Yes. I like it. See, it, it, it's good to have. It's good to have supporters in all walks of life. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all these TV appearances that we've been having. Uh, the, the pregame show just knows no bounds. And by the way, uh, we're, we're on television tomorrow for uh, the lead up to the Canucks and Nashville Predators um, as the Canucks get back to action. So, uh, okay, a couple of things uh, we should get to. Uh, Always have to put on your best behavior out in town now, Dan. Oh, 100%. Like, you got to be careful. Like, you can't even have, like, you know how, like, sometimes with your significant other, you, other, you can have, like, a little bickering or whatever? Yeah. You know, you, know, you got to be careful in public. It'll come off as, like, yeah, I saw Dan and his wife fighting. Yeah, Ooh, no, don't, don't, yeah, don't need any of that, you know? Don't want the Reddit boards to, to just uh, start getting out of control on uh, what's happening with Canuck Central. But, um uh, that's that's for another day. Uh, so the, the the rumor mill never really stops. That we're gonna have Frank Saravalli join us uh, coming up later on this hour. And Saturday, uh, now the clip that's gone around Canucks Twitter quite a bit, and everybody's had their fair share to say on it. 
J.T. Miller came up during 32 Thoughts, and Elliot sort of saying that uh, teams have started to discuss it, maybe even have made a few phone calls, nothing too serious as of yet, but uh, just sort of wondering, uh, could there be something there? And you know, I, I find it really interesting that this is picking up in the lead-up to the deadline. Obviously, JT's uh, no-move clause hasn't yet kicked in. It won't kick in until July 1st. So that does give the Canucks some flexibility to move the player should the right deal come along. But as we've always talked about, that's what this is. It's about the right deal coming along. Should that right deal still be there? Well, and that's always what it's been. And this is what we discussed before, that it's very clear that Vancouver's open to just about anything outside of, you know, Patterson and Hughes. And even them, we've talked about, like, nobody's untouchable if you make the right offer. It's just very unlikely anybody's going to step up to the plate to make you consider moving your two best players who are cornerstone uh, franchise pieces for this organization. So everybody else, if you call and you discuss, the banker will listen. They'll listen to what you have to say, at least if you come up with something that's worth listening to. And that's kind of the sense I got talking to people around the league is that, yeah, there are people that still think very highly of JT and they think JT's a player that can help them out. Now, the question is, do they view Vancouver as a situation where they can come and prime away at half the cost of what it would have taken last year, and it's an opportunity they feel like they could take advantage of? Or is it one where somebody's prepared to give you true value? And I think that's where Vancouver is listening to find out where people are coming from. But that's kind of the sense I've gotten from talking to people around the league and was, yeah, you know, there are people that like JT Miller a lot. And the thing you've been mentioning a lot and we've talked about a lot, not a ton of free agents. You look at players that can do different things for you, play a different type of style. And yeah, there's a lot of money owed to him, but he does peak interest for a number of different teams. And ultimately, it's unlikely anybody's going to be able to make that type of trade at the deadline because we see how hard it is to move money, let alone that much money that kicks in next year. And maybe the offseason is easier. But that's kind of the reality of where Vancouver finds itself. And despite all the discussion points about, oh, JT and people in this market don't like JT and everything, and maybe the Canucks made a mistake, I'm not sure everybody around the league views JT Miller as a player they don't want to touch. So I do think it's one of those where the perception in this market might be more negative than what a lot of people around the league may feel about the player. A hundred percent it is, you know, and uh, not that I've uh, loved a lot of uh, what JT's done this year as a player. He hasn't been nearly as good as he was a season ago, but, you know, like point per game types or close to point per game types just aren't easy to find. And we know this. Uh, it's not a surprise, and JT can help your power play. He can is, is probably better slated to not play big penalty kill minutes, but he can help you uh, in certain situations there. And, you know, maybe for a few teams he could still be viewed as a center, but there's also the flexibility of potentially being a big-time wing for some teams. Uh, you know, this is still a really quality hockey player and one that I think might even thrive more if not in such a prominent role like the one he is in in Vancouver where he's relied upon so much in big spots. But $8 million for next year and the $56 million contract obviously is a bit of a hurdle now. And it's essentially... A team would have to ask themselves: Would we get, would we have given this contract to JT? Should he, like if he was a free agent? And 
also still have to give up some kind of asset to get the player as well. That's the thing about free agency and why teams are often willing to spend a little bit more. Like, you're getting this player for free. You're not giving up the asset to go along with taking on that contract. And that's obviously not a part of the question anymore with JT Miller. It's 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 not something Vancouver's willing to give away. And I, I think that's the thing that Canucks fans have to realize here, Sat. As much as a lot of people I know are are saying on Twitter and coming into my DMs and, and tweeting at me and saying, just get rid of him already. He needs to go. Uh, just whatever you can get, like just get rid of it. Get rid of the contract. That's the only thing that matters here. The Canucks don't view it that way. They still want to get something tangible in return for JT Miller. Yeah, I don't think they have an appetite to let players they believe are important players or guys that are valuable go for nothing, especially after just signing him. Like, I, I don't get the sense at all that they've soured to that degree. You know what I mean? Like the team's like, you know what? We made a huge mistake six months ago. Let's try to find a way to, to get this off our books. And the team you heard linked to them was the Carolina Hurricanes. It's something that Elliot mentioned that at least earlier this year or earlier this season, they at least inquired or or did something. But what is their MO on acquiring players with big contracts? Essentially get them for free, right? Like mm-hmm. that's kind of been what it was. Look at the Brent Burns deal. Did it give up a lot? They retained salary. Uh, San Jose to make that deal happen. Took Max Pacioretty for free, essentially, taking on that contract for one year. He ended up getting injured. So I looked at Carolina's interest as being maybe opportunistic to some degree, right? I mean, and I can't say this for a fact, but I'm that's kind of my assumption on this, you know, looking into it a little bit. But they probably looked at it and said, yeah, we're willing to take this player on if we can do something really worthwhile and team-friendly for us if Vancouver wants off the money. And I think the sense they got pretty quickly was, Vancouver doesn't just want to get off the money, so we can't just scoop in and, and take him for nothing. The 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 one team I I wonder about. They've been linked to Vancouver quite a bit. It's the New Jersey Devils. They have a ton of cap space um, moving forward. They they've still got to sign Jasper Bratt, but you know even you think of their back end, Damon Severson and Ryan Graves. You know two players that are due for big contracts or due for uh, extensions, whatever it may be. They they still have, you know, Nemich and, and Hughes coming through on their back end. So would they want to give those players big-time contracts uh, into the future when they know they've got a couple of young studs coming along the way? Wouldn't want to block their pathway to the NHL, but they are looking for a power-forward type, and that's something JT can't provide. I, I think ultimately, you know, they, they look at Timo Meyer, but... You know, New Jersey's probably looking at doing something big given the season that they've had. And I would, at, at the very least, just wonder if they might be one of those teams thinking about a JT Miller acquisition. Ultimately, this is something um, that I think makes a lot more sense when you get closer to the NHL draft sat, where teams have a better sense of what they've got going in the summer and what free agents they might even have a chance at. And if they don't have a chance... At any of the bigger free agents, you know, that's when maybe they look at acquiring something via trade to add to their roster. Because at the end of the day, there's a lot more teams looking to improve their rosters when you get to summertime rather than here at the deadline when you're very limited to just a certain amount of buyers around the league that are looking for a specific piece to add for a playoff run. Motivations change in the offseason significantly, and especially for teams that had hopes and had playoff failures. Nothing really kickstarts offseason moves than teams who had ambitions and failed in the postseason to at least do something, and especially teams that feel like they have certain shortcomings that may 
be related to guys who can win in the postseason, some toughness, some edge or whatever. And that does sometimes change the equation on the types of players who are available and the types of players teams kind of go after in the offseason. I think that kind of does change. And one of the other things to keep in mind here is the rest of the season and how not just JT, but we talk about Besser, we talk about Garland, how they finish the year playing on a team that is at least somewhat more structured, looking at least more cohesive. And when teams look at Vancouver now, if at least they can play more structured hockey the rest of the season, that they look at that situation and say, okay, at least Besser, Garland, and JT are playing well, having success, playing a type of system that we play to some degree. That Okay, this is real hockey these guys are playing, and they're playing well, playing real hockey. And maybe that changes the perception of, okay, we're not just taking players off a bad team that have horrible habits that are going to come in and we're not going to make use of. How can you change the narrative and change kind of the perception around your players because of the environment you're playing in? You're still going to lose a lot of games. Me saying structure, Dan, isn't to say they're going to go out and win a lot of games and, and be this really good hockey team. It's more about are you playing disciplined hockey and playing within you know the confines of, of a system and a style of play that winning teams play even if even if you lose you adhere to it well that means you understand how to play systems hockey and, and play a team game and have success as long as you do that even if you don't win I think it does make people look at you and say okay this is a guy we can plug in and have success with and the way JT's played under Tockett these 10 games look at the analytics look at his production it's been maybe the best hockey he's played all season. You know, mm-hmm. we talk about the differentials playing center, and I know you've really honed in on he's been better defensively, or at least tried defensively more than people give him credit for. But there's also a player there who can play center. But these last 10 games, not only is he productive, go through all the metrics. He's in the plus in terms of shots created. Uh, in terms of goals against, he's in a good spot. His expected goals, he's in the plus, right? High danger scoring chances, creating more than he's given up. Yeah, there's been some goals that have gone in. While while he's been on, he's been on the ice for five goals, four, seven goals against at five on five. But if you go through all the players, even though they played a bit better, every single team on this, every single player on this team is essentially in the negative in terms of goal differentials because of the amount of goals they've given up these past 10 games. A lot of it obviously being attributed rightly or wrongly to goaltending. But if JT Miller can play this style of hockey the rest of the season and play well playing center, well, maybe teams look at him differently come the offseason. Uh, it is Canuck Central, Dan Richo, Sat T.R. Shaw. You know, the, Saturday, uh, JT did have a few of those giveaways that uh, nobody likes to see. Uh, I think he was uh, credited with two giveaways, but there was just moments where his puck management wasn't all that great. A few breakouts where he just, you know, kind of um, just tried to get the puck out to center when maybe there was a play to be made on, on a cleaner breakout with a controlled exit. You know, those are still things that JT has had trouble with this year that I'd still like to see him get better at. But yes, at the same time, you're right. It is the best hockey we've seen JT play uh, for an extended period of time this year at both ends of the rink uh, right now for the Vancouver Canucks. So that is trending upward. The player that has led this team sat all season long, had another five-point night, uh, his third of the season. Uh, So... Elias Pettersson now up to 71 points, 27 goals, 44 assists in just 54 games. It's tied for 7th in the league with Tage Thompson and Jason Robertson. And it's one of those things, again, where it kind of sneaks up on you just how good Elias Pettersson's season has been. But... As I started going through it, Sat, not just from a raw points perspective, but like Elias Pettersson 
is having one of the better years across the National Hockey League. His five-on-five points per 60 is at over three and a half right now. No other player is over 3.2. It is like, it's not even close how much more productive um, Elias Pettersson has been on a per-minute basis than other forwards, other players in the National Hockey League. I mean, what he's done and the season he's put together is incredibly impressive and probably, you know, among the top 10 forward seasons in the league right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, when I look at Pedersen, you know, and, and, and where he was last year, the season he was coming off, even though he finished strong and ended up with a career high in points at 68, now that he's over that with a new career high at 71, you know, I just, I start going through the names, and if we're talking about top 10 forwards in the league, I think we're definitely getting to a point where Elias Patterson is in that conversation for the season that he has had. Of course, you know, Jack Hughes is there as another player is having an incredible year and might end up being a Hart Trophy candidate at the end of this one. David Pasternak has returned this year and has been incredible and back to one of the best goal scorers in the league. You can always talk about McDavid. And Dreisaitl, although I don't think Dreisaitl's had as good of a year as his points may suggest right now, but um, and he even alluded to that at the All-Star game, that he can be better this year. You know, it's just, if, if we're talking about players that have at least come to the conversation of breaking into the top 10 in the league, you know, we're talking about Jack Hughes, Tage Thompson, Elias Pettersson, and probably Jason Robertson as the four guys that are really challenging, you know, the 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 players that have been there for a while now among that conversation of top 10 forwards in the league. Yeah, I'd say those are the four, right? And and it's really funny you look at where they rank amongst uh forwards and scoring. Cage Thompson 6th, Jason Robertson 7th, Elias Pettersson 8th, Jack Hughes 9th, and Tage Robertson and Pettersson all have 71 points and Jack Hughes comes in at 69, so they all find themselves in the top 10 of scoring. But being a top 10 scorer as a forward doesn't mean you're a top 10 player as a forward because two of the players outside the top 10 are Sidney Crosby and Nathan McKinnon, right? So you can't just sit here and say, oh, because Pedersen's eighth, he's a top 10. So I think it's still hard. You know, you can still easily make the argument that Rantanen maybe ranks ahead of him because of success he's had, right? Or even Kirill Kaprizov and obviously Crosby and Nathan McKinnon. But even with that being the case, to your point, I think Elias Pettersson is there in the discussion of top 10 forwards. He's certainly there as a top 10 center. I mean, you know, top eight center, perhaps even if you start, you know, really digging through which which type of centers you would prefer to have instead of some other guys and how Pettersson fits into that. And how many more levels would you say he has, Dan? Like, I'd say there is at least, at least two more levels for Elias Pettersson as a player. Two more levels. Two more levels. Like, I, I do think his defensive game still can catch up like he's been good and he we show we see the potential i don't know if he's truly actualized his two-way potential yet you know what i mean like i think there's more there for him to truly put it all together as a two-way player so i think that's one aspect of it and the other one is just the pure physical maturity like he's nowhere near his peak physical maturity yet well on those two things i think consistency hasn't always been there for Pedersen this year when it comes to his defensive play like there's been more ups and downs with his defensive play this year than his offensive game and 
I think there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of it being, you know, just the team that he plays on and how, you know, those factors uh, come in when he is trying to play defensively uh, or uh, how his defensive metrics can maybe, um, his defensive impact can suffer because of teammates and just how poor this team has been overall defensively. And the other thing, it's obvious, uh, he's made some kind of a conscious decision to be a more physical player. We see him throw more hits. You know, when I was looking at some of the numbers, you know, he throws over three hits a game, which not a lot of the top forwards in the league do. And I think that's a noticeable difference. We've seen him, you know, take some runs at guys and, and throw a big hit here and there, which is not something we saw Pedersen do in the past. And he himself has spoken about still wanting to get stronger and be stronger on the puck because he thinks there are still times when he can get knocked off of it a little too easily. And that's even a narrative that I think has dissipated around him as a player this year, even though he still looks at it as something he can improve on. His power play numbers. You know, if you're talking about finding another gear offensively, like he he's barely scored on the power play this season, as we've talked about, Sat, right? at least from a goals perspective, that could be where he increases that number, becoming a bigger shooter on the power play now with Bo Horvat gone and him taking a bigger role on taking those big shots and being maybe the go-to shot on this power play, this top power play unit. So there are a few areas where I still see his production can you know, improve and defensively he can find some areas to continue to grow. I'm glad you brought up the power play because I, I believe there's a lot more, a lot more he can do on the power play because he's so often been, I wouldn't say relegated necessarily because I do think he was more than just being a one-time threat off the half wall. But I do think a lot of it was him being that threat and taken away from his overall ability to do a lot more, I think, on the man advantage. And if you look at these last 10 games, even though the production hasn't necessarily blown up in terms of his 5-1-5 production. I mean, his uh, his power play production, he's still been really good. I mean, 17 points in 10 games, and in that stretch, he also has nine power play points. So almost been a point per game on the man advantage, and you mentioned earlier that he's the league leader in 5-on-5 production for all players in the league this year, and it shows you how, how, how effective he's been. And on the power play, with how they're trying to play now, and it's still a small sample, right? We've only seen 10 games with a new coach and what they're doing, but the power play's been clicking at, what, 30% efficiency uh, since the trade was made and Bavillier stepped in really well. It's they're, so much more fun to watch, too. Just It really is. Just interject. <laughs> 100%. And it's more unpredictable, right? Isn't that what makes yeah. it more fun? It, it's so much more movement, unpredictability. And I know Talk had mentioned they're able to keep possession, and not just possession on the outside. Like, they're getting seam passes, getting defense moving, getting the goalie to move post-to-post, getting the goalie tired. I mean, these are the types of things you can do without getting a shot on goal to increase your chance of scoring once you finally do get a shot on goal. And these are the things they're doing so much better of. And I think a lot of it is you're fully allowing Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson to do whatever they want. Now you don't have, like, the structure of, we're going to the bumper play. We're going to the Pedersen one-timer. And Hughes is just kind of trying to find two guys, JT or Pedersen, essentially, in the odd point shot. Now there's so much more unpredictability. And if you empower a player like Pedersen and Hughes on the power play over time, is there another level we can see on the man advantage? I definitely think that there is another level for Pedersen to get to on the man advantage. But, um, you know, if you start tearing out some of these players, of course you're going to have McDavid, Dreisaitl, Kucherov, um, 
you know, those guys are Austin Matthews. Those are the Nathan McKinnon. You know, we know who the top, top players are in the league, but you're starting to get Pedersen into the conversation of being in the third tier. Can he jump into that second tier of top, top players in the league? And that's, um, that's where you're looking at uh, him potentially going to. And that's why I think it's massive for the Canucks to really hammer down that contract this summer. Sad. We heard uh, Patterson talk about it on After Hours uh, this past weekend. You know, we talked to him about it when it came down at the All-Star game and we had him exclusively here on, on Canuck Central. You know, it's clear that, you know, there's there's a potential marriage to, to happen long-term with Elias Patterson and the Vancouver Canucks. It's just going to come down to what the dollars and cents of it all are. Uh, we're going to get to some of that conversation and the trade scuttlebutt around the league and with your Vancouver Canucks with our Monday Hockey Insider. Frank Saravalli of the Daily Faceoff joins us next on Canuck Central. Back in on Canuck Central, it's Dan Richo Satyar Shah from the Kintech Studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. This hour is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. We welcome in... Our next guest, it is Frank Saravalli of the Daily Faceoff, our Monday Hockey Insider. Thanks for this, Frank. Happy Family Day to you. Uh, thanks. We call it President's Day here in the U.S., but whatever it is, uh, Family Day is is nice, too. Uh, reality is, I know uh, for sure you're still working and uh, maybe not hoping uh, for a NHL trade to come down, but we are just 11 days away from uh, the NHL trade deadline. We saw a couple of deals go down over the weekend, but of course, uh, we're still focused here on what could happen with the Vancouver Canucks. And um, what's your read of why uh, the uh, JT Miller rumor mill has started to pick up a little bit here? Well, I think part of it is everyone's looking at that no trade clause kicking in in, in July, and they're saying, hey, if we're actually considering doing this, why would we we were to a period of time where we might have less flexibility than we do at this exact moment? I think it's still probably a bit of a long shot. However, I will tell you this. I was flirting with the idea of putting GT Miller on my trade targets board last week uh, before Elliot and Jeff started talking about him. And the reason for that is I've talked to a number of teams who internally say that they have discussed the idea of what acquiring GT Miller might look like. And I don't know that they've fully gone through the exercise, meaning if they've really looked at the parts that would be required in order to pull it off um, and and have really assimilated what that contract would look like on their salary cap. But there's been enough internal conversation, and I don't know if they've reached out to the Canucks or not, that there's a few teams that are curious that at least raises your eyebrow and piques your interest. Well, and that's kind of one of the things that I had kind of heard that if somebody calls, and we knew this to be true anyways, that Vancouver has a couple of guys that want to move, Pedersen, Hughes, everybody else, call and make some sort of an offer. And I kind of heard similar things a few weeks ago when we had you on and I asked, hey, would you be surprised at all if you hear JT's name come up? That he's a guy that as much as his season hasn't gone well and as much as he's getting criticized a lot here, I'm not quite sure the league overall or at least all teams have soured on him the same way a lot of people in this market have, Frank. 
I think that's probably fair to say. I would say there are still a number of overarching concerns when it comes to JT Miller. I think everyone sort of has a real solid concept of um, his game. I think there's still a few teams that actually see him as a center. Um, and I think the Canucks, um, I don't know. I, I'd love to inject some truths here. I'm like, do they actually see him as a center or is he a winger? And then the next part is the contract. Um, you know, his season has not been as good and color me shocked and color everyone else surprised that a guy that had a true statistical outlier season last, last year hasn't been able to duplicate that. That happens way more often than not. It, it's pretty rare to see someone like Tage Thompson hit a milestone that he hit last year and then, you know, come back this year and exceed that. Um, that happens so far and few between, especially with the track record that we've had from um, from JT Miller previously. We had like 550 games of, uh, of, of history to point to to say this is mostly what we believe this player is. And then I think there is some, you know, concern out there of, of the personality factor. And I don't know JT Miller. I don't know the way to properly describe it. Um, he's, he's a competitor. He wants to win. He's got fire. But he rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And I think that's a fair statement to make um, just based on the reporting that I've done uh, from guys that are in the room that he can be a pain in the arse. And that's sort of also well known. So all of those things, you know, considerations all go into the idea of, you know, what an acquisition might look like. And it's it's not so much the dollars, it's the term. Well, the, the one thing that I, I think plays a big, big factor here in potential interest is if JT were to be, uh, let's, let's live in the world where the Canucks didn't give him the extension and he was slated to be a part of free agency this summer, could he still get a similar contract or even the same contract that the Canucks gave him last September in what is a very weak free agency class, Frank? Like this is this is still like a near point per game player we're talking about, whether he's playing center or wing, and you know it's it is a really grim free agency class if you look ahead to it. You're right in that, um, but I I think it's more it's more the term that's the yeah. issue. Like, could he get that that AAV? Could he hit eight million bucks on the market? Yeah, I think he could. Probably he could get close to it. Um. But is he going to get it for seven years? That, I think, is the big question. And and I think the answer to that would be no. Well, when we start looking at what else the Vancouver Canucks may be getting up to, and we'll see the JT stuff may be more interesting in the offseason, but certainly something to keep an eye on as we were 11 days away from the trade deadline. And maybe one trade a lot of people had expected to be done by now with the amount of talk around it would have been that Luke Shen won. But at the same time, as much as there's a desire by Luke Shen and the Canucks to get that done, how big a priority are depth defensemen right now, still 10, 11 days out of the deadline? Um, I would say that's kind of the tough part is the priority factor. And just to touch on Shen for a second, like the I think part of the issue that's held that up is teams, at least teams that are in the market for defensemen, a lot of them have still been circling or hovering around Vladislav Gavrikov and Jacob Chikrin to the point where like, let's put yourself in the shoes of the Boston Bruins. I still think they're the the favorite or front runner for Gavrikov. I think they've kept tabs on Chikrin just to make sure. Um, and they're in a spot where, let's say they don't land one of those players, do they then circle back to Luke Shen and, and go from there? 
And I think there's a few teams that are out there also uh, sort of in wait and see mode as to their playoff chances. Like what's going on with the Calgary Flames? Um, are, is a team like the Minnesota Wild, are they going to be buying? Like those are all big questions and, and they've all sort of filtered back with regards to Shen to, um, you know, let's wait and see what happens here. And he's been on the back burner. Uh, released from the shackles of playing with Oliver ekman Larson, Shen had a three-point night on Saturday and was uh, plus five, by the way. So, uh, it, it, that's his certain... point production this season has actually been pretty underrated. You know, I, it, it seems like any player that works with Adam Oates all of a sudden uh, really starts to to really find their game. But I've actually been really surprised at um, you know some of the improvements Shen has made. Just a quick area stick handling and and. Just slight improvements that have made him a much more valuable player in the last uh, in the it's, last year. It's changed his life. I don't know. Um, it's changed his career for sure. I don't know exactly what these guys pay Adam Oates. Some people say it's within, you know, the the range of, of fifty thousand bucks a year or whatever it comes out to. It's worth its weight in gold. Whatever he's collecting from all those guys, he's earning them way more on the back end of it. Oh, Frank Valley, our guest. Go ahead. Sir. Yeah, he's. Oh, sorry, I was going to say like he's. Luke's been terrific in that sense in, in terms of creating some offense and doing a bit of everything. And I wonder from Vancouver's perspective, even though right now the value may not be there and as much as it may suck for Luke, they may just have to drag this out. I think they probably get close to what they're looking for, at least a third, but probably not until the deadline. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's sort of exactly where it ends up is in that third round pick range. And, um, you know, you look back at the market last year and, and Justin Braun got a third. I think Shen is is significantly better than, than Justin Braun uh, was at this time last year. And the thing is, I, I just, I don't know if he's going to creep into that second round pick range. And I think that's what the, the Canucks have sort of been holding their breath and holding out hope for. I just don't know if that's going to materialize. Now, one thing Sat and I have uh, sort of discussed in uh, talking about that weak free agency class in the summer, you know, we've had so much discussions about Besser, Garland, even Miller, the more expensive Canucks forwards. Could the weak free agency class make them more attractive to teams potentially in the summer? We've already discussed Miller, but could that be something that works for Besser or Garland should the Canucks, you know, not make that move ahead of the deadline? Maybe, maybe not. I would say the other thing is, you also don't know what other trade pieces would be out there on the market, which teams might be in a spot where they're discontented with the lack of success that they've had. And they're they're saying, hey, we're going to blow this up a bit. We're going to take a piece from our team and we're going to move them out somewhere. And I don't know what the proper example of that is, but there's enough teams that are in the mix right now that, you know, let's say they have a disastrous playoff run could decide to shake things up. And that's sort of what you're guarding against if you're Vancouver is, you know, what that market might look like then. And also, if you're waiting until the summer to make those trades, you're losing the cap flexibility to really begin to improve your team otherwise. And how often have we talked about Patrick Alvin and, and Jim Rutherford creating that cap flexibility that has not materialized whatsoever? Like, there is is almost no cap flexibility outside of the, the Dickinson trade because, you know, you look at the Kuzmenko extension, and and you look at the the addition of Beauvillier, like that's that's just added money. Well, and that's the thing, and there's still a lot of work that they have to do in terms of getting that money off the books. And everything we see around the league right now, is there any way to move money on a significant deal without taking anything back at this point? Like, it, are we even going to be able to see? Where? Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, so there are some teams. Yeah, I guess like teams like Chicago, Chicago and... teams that have cap space, but right. most other teams. I mean, 
it seems like even for rentals, it's going to have to have to be some money in, money out to some degree. Well, we're going to have a lot of third-party broker deals. That's why I wrote a story about it six weeks ago to highlight the teams, the process, uh, the history of it, to to have people understand that it's significantly difficult to to move that kind of serious cap space, and to in order to pull it off, um, you know, you're really going to have to maneuver. And and I don't, you know. There just aren't teams that are ready and willing to sign up to take it without having you pay through the nose to do it. Frank Saravalli, our guest here on uh, on Canuck Central. Um, so Elias Patterson was on uh, After Hours uh, this past weekend. He had the big five-point night, his third of the season. He's top 10 in scoring now with 71 points on the year. Actually has uh, by far the best five-on-five scoring rate, points per 60 in the NHL so far this season as well. Um, you know, he said he would, uh, he'd be willing, uh, to, to commit long-term to the Canucks. Um, you know, we've sort of thought that that contract could look like in and around $90 million on an eight year deal. That's, that's pretty much the going rate for a star player like Elias Pettersson, isn't it? Probably. I mean, that's, uh, that's sort of in the range that I was thinking and, it's it's expensive. There's no two ways around it, um, you know. And, and probably when you look at him and where he's at, at at his age, at his production value, and a player that I think, honestly, that's the most intriguing part about him is I think he still has another level that he can get to, uh, to really transcend where he is now. That you'd be buying all of the very best years of his career like I I think that's a number that probably makes sense it does and I think the bigger question around Pedersen has always been what is his desire to be in Vancouver and it seems like it's all kind of related to a couple things money being the other part of it and the other one being the plan the team's going to put together and show whether they can be a winner or not when you look around the league you get the sense that people look at that situation in Vancouver wondering okay can we pry PD loose there or is there a sense that he's probably not going to probably not going to be a guy who's available regardless. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really spent a ton of time thinking about the possibility because I think everyone just assumes that he's not going anywhere, that if you're going to be building around a player and 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 building your franchise up, like he's one of them. I've included Quinn Hughes in that category. I think it's up for debate as to whether or not the Canucks believe that. Um, and then I'd probably even throw Demko in there too. Uh, but I kind of view them as the untouchables and, you know, I don't think anyone sat back and said, well, maybe we should have a conversation or, or let's talk about this internally. Like I haven't even heard that pop up at all. Um, and so I, I thought one of the other interesting parts of the, the Pedersen interview was also, you know, the idea of being captain. And I, I felt like that just offered some sort of window into the person and not in any negative way at all. I thought it was incredibly honest. Um, but just the idea of like I'm not sure, and it's and it, I don't think that encapsulates how he feels about Vancouver at all. I think it just speaks to also that it's not just how competitive the team is going to be and what the dollars and cents are. I think he's a pretty sensitive guy, and I think um, that the people around him are also going to matter as well. There's uh, just so much that comes along with uh, wearing that C on your jersey, especially in a Canadian market where you have to do so much uh, of the extra media. Uh, Frank Cervalli, our guest, um, you know, um, on on other money topics uh, in the summer for the Vancouver Canucks. I was just I was just sort of looking at this uh, this morning, Frank. Um, Oliver Ekman Larson buyout would be a top five 
expensive buyout in the history of the National Hockey League. Do we sort of like when that conversation comes up, you know, do we just underrate how expensive that is and how unlikely it is for an owner to sort of take that that almost poison pill, if you want to call it that? I mean, do I underwrite it? No, um, because that's a serious amount of like you're paying someone $20 million to not play for your team. Yeah. And yeah, you'd save $10 million in real cash. But the cap hit for the couple years after it, 25, 26, and 26, 27, if you look at the calculator on capfriendly.com, 4.7 is a lot. I mean, that's a pretty big deal to carry on your books. It's not like Parise and Suter money. And I guess if, if anything goes to show you, like, the fact that the Wild have not just been able to survive but also be competitive during that window is really a testament to them and, and their courage to go out and do it. And and yeah, like four and change is, is better than 8.25. But I my my thought process on, on the Ekman Larson buyout is see if you can hang on just a little bit longer to then pull it off. But even then the cap it doesn't get much better. The cap it would still be for two years four point one in 25, 26, and 26, 27. So it's really not pretty no matter which way you do it. No, it's not. I mean, and, and, and that's why it's still, again, I, I do think some teams are going to be forced with a situation this offseason where they're going to have to explore those types of buyouts and, and somebody's going to have to take the poison pill. Are, are we going to see maybe the new level of ambition being how much money owners are willing to eat this offseason? It's gross to think about. Um <laughs> Maybe I would say there's like a real candidate would be someone like um, Mark Edward Vlasic in San Jose as they kind of aggressively try to redo this. It also depends what happens with Carlson. And I'd assume that, you know, Meyer is, is not going to be here much beyond the next 12 days, 11 days. Um, but, you know, you look at, at Vlasic and his is like just as, as ugly to go through $10 million in real cash five million dollar savings it's ugly um and and one other thing is you guys were kind of looking forward to the summer and and what might be i actually think there's a way in which tyler myers becomes really attractive after july 1st with that five million dollar signing bonus being paid yeah that's uh something uh certainly a lot of canucks fans are, are keeping an eye on uh, just breaking uh, as as we sit here and discuss things uh, matt barzell out indefinitely with a lower body injury, and uh, certainly things haven't gone the way the, the New York Islanders would have hoped since making the Bo Horvat trade. You know, they've gone through a really ugly spell here, losing four of their last five, and it's just the, the move hasn't had the desired effect I think Lou Lamorello was going for, at least results-wise yet, Frank. No, it's not, and it's not going to be getting prettier with Barzell out. I mean, this is the risk that you take when you not just – double down on your roster, but you triple down on it for one that hasn't been very good this year. And you look at the Islanders and where they're at points percentage wise, like I don't want to say they're out of it, but they're in a spot where, especially now having one of their big offensive producers on a team that really struggles to score goals, taking that out of the mix. Um, yikes. Like yikes is, you know, you, you just look at the Eastern conference standings and you sort them by points percentage. Like, it's it's not great for the Islanders. 
Um, they're in 10th place by points percentage and Ottawa's just behind them for 11th and Florida's just behind them. So like they could see themselves in 12th place in points percentage based on the day. And that's a really difficult spot to be in. Are we going to see a situation potentially with the Islanders where it's kind of like Mike Keenan with the Florida Panthers, where we made a bunch of these bold moves, traded Luongo, and then not too long after ended up getting fired. Like, are we going to see Lamorello if this, this season goes sideways that missed the playoffs Barzal's out. They gave this big contract to Bo Horvat. Like, could his job really be in jeopardy, or is he pretty entrenched there? I don't know the answer to that, and it's a good one because I would think that he's obviously highly respected and entrenched, but at the same time, you know, you're going to bring in someone new. How many new directions can this next person go with it? Like, they're kind of anchored in, not just to, to Lou Lamorello, but they're anchored into all the moves that he's made. I mean... Take a look at their team, and it's not just the age of their core. It's the term on the contracts that they have. Like, it's it's really tough to figure, like, when there's going to be any change coming. I'm just looking at it right now. They've got seven forwards that are signed for at least the next two seasons and four defensemen. That's a lot. Yeah, they're uh, they're kind of locked into to a lot, and next year... Not going to get a lot easier for them, especially now with the uh, conversation around their first-round pick belonging to Vancouver in either this draft or the next one. Uh, Frank, always wish we had more time. Thanks for this today. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. There is Frank Saravalli of the Daily Faceoff. Joins us every Monday here on Canucks Central. So, uh, yes, the Oliver Ekman-Larsen buyout continues to be a conversation. So uh, I-, I was wondering just how expensive it is compared to other buyouts in NHL history. It is more expensive than Alexi Yashin, uh, but less expensive than Brad Richards, Ilya Brzgalov, uh, Rick DiPietro, and the most expensive of all time at $32.6 million buyout cost for Vinny LeCavalier sats. Yeah, and that was a compliance buyout, correct? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't count against your cap, but it shows there, there have been buyouts where they've eaten more money than OEL. Like OEL won't be the biggest in history, but it, it ranks pretty high up there. Like, it's, it, it's amongst the highest, right? Like, it's there with the beginning of the Caballier one. Yeah, and it is uh, easily the most in Canucks history. Keith Ballard, still uh, the most expensive buyout in Canucks history. It was around uh, $5 bucks, I believe. Even the um, Parise and Suter buyouts, while their cap charges are massive, you know, the actual cost of those was just over $6.5 bucks. Yeah. So, you know, because, you know, those contracts were back-dived and... Uh, didn't have a ton of value in them through the final remaining years. That's why they're also so expensive because they were thought to be buyout proof at the time. But the Minnesota Wild had uh, had other thoughts on that. Uh, we'll have more to discuss tomorrow. Canucks are in Nashville. They have three goalies on the trip. We'll see how it all shakes out and if we'll see Thatcher Demko at some point soon we're back tomorrow with uh, a little pregame show as well ahead of the five o'clock puck drop in smashville for producer josh elliott wolf my co-host satyar shah i'm dan Richo. you've been listening to canuck central